Good morning, good morning. And again I say good morning. I don't even know what that means. Um, so before we uh, jump in, I'm, I, uh, I have a quick uh, Brandon update. You know our friend uh, Brandon that uh, was with us here for a number of years and uh, is over in a uh, uh, set-free ministry in Elma, Washington. Uh, I've had a couple of phone calls from Brandon over the last 10 days or so, the most recent being yesterday, and he sounds great. Um, Yesterday, uh, he expressed deep gratitude for the spiritual, emotional, and financial support of this church and its people. Um, He has a new awareness, uh, uh, an increasing awareness of all that has been done for him and on his behalf over the years. <clears throat> it was very encouraging to hear. Um, a couple weeks is going to be six months. Uh, he will have been um, at Set Free. Um, there, there's an opportunity or two coming up, so he's trying to figure out some direction on what comes next for him. So he is asking for prayer um, that we would all be praying for wisdom, for uh, discernment, and help him, helping him make the, the right decision. Um, and after, um, I don't know if grilling him is the right phrase, but after asking him several questions about what's going into the thought process, uh, it seems like he's trying to make good decisions for good reasons. Um, and I don't know that there's a bad decision, but there, there's probably one that's going to be better for him than another. So um, over the next week or two, if you would all be joining us in prayer to pray for Brandon. Um, and then we'll pray for, for that and for this service as we get started this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for the chance to gather this morning. Um, just this last week, uh, there's a story of a, a pastor in Canada who's being, uh, who has been arrested for uh, having church in the face of government lockdowns and restrictions. And uh, while we're not seeing that here yet... Um, it does seem like there's, there's possibility for us moving forward. We're, we're seeing a, an increase in, in secularization and an increase uh, away from the call to, to church, uh, the, from the call of the gospel. Um, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about over the next few months. So we're, we're grateful for the chance to be here and gather together this morning to, to worship the, the almighty creator God, um, to uh, freely gather and admit that we are followers of Jesus Christ and we're, we're trying to do our best to be uh, ambassadors of the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray for the amazing work that's being done in the life of Brandon. Um, we are grateful uh, and, and the work that's being done in him, um, and we know that you will continue that work to its completion. We're excited to see what that looks like, um, and we pray for him over these next uh, days and weeks. Um, where he's got a decision to make, Lord, that you would just grant him wisdom, give him discernment, ask him, uh, give, give him knowledge to know the right questions and the right things to look for. Uh, and Lord, I pray, I, I told him that we would pray if, if, if it's, um, that it would be obvious to him, that there would be roadblocks, there would be red flags uh, on one decision or the other, that you would make it clear for him. He, he, he seems to um, be sincere in his desire to follow your will and where you're leading. So Lord, make it clear for him. Um, give him wisdom and discernment as he goes forward. Uh, and I pray for, uh, pr- pray that for the rest of us as we go through our, our lives and um, out into the, the business place and into the community. And Lord, I pray that we are listening for your will and, and looking to follow your will 
um, because there are so many distractions. There are so many ways to be pulled out of your call for us, um, as we'll see over the next week or two or three. Um, so I thank you for your, your love for all of us, for your, your patience for us, um, for sending your son to die for us in the first place. Uh, Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we have, uh, as you know, finished our quick romp through the book of Galatians. Uh, I think it was six chapters in seven weeks or something like that. Um, and in just a few short weeks, we're going to start our next sermon series, which is going to be on the book of, Go- of Ephesians. Um, and as you know, we, we tend to go through an entire book of the Bible, you know, like consecutively all in a row. Uh, and we do this for a number of reasons, because um, we believe that the Lord gave us this whole book to read, not just sections of it, not just pieces of it. Um, we didn't get a Reader's Digest version, although that's kind of what we make it. Um, we believe that all of God's Word is helpful for teaching and reproof and correction, and we need to hear all of it. So we don't just skip around to the easy, ear-itching parts. Um, and what it does is it forces us to deal with any number of less-than-ideal issues, difficult subject matters, circumstances that we would otherwise avoid. God's Word makes us confront and deal with our stuff. It makes us deal with our sin. If you think about Genesis alone, I mean, we had concubines and incest and rape and disobedience and people laughing at God and all manner of awful things. Um, We just finished going through the book of first circumcision, Galatians, um, which can be kind of an awkward topic to talk about every week. And See, now I lost my place. (laughs) It's an awkward thing to talk about repeatedly, and yet the larger theme of the book reinforced for us the need to maintain the purity of the faith and the truth of the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing. So it's all instructive. It's all helpful for us. But every now and again, we do take a little sidestep. We, we, we do deal with a particular issue or theme as opposed to a book, and that's where we are today. Um, and this is a topic I have been considering, thinking about, praying about, studying about, reading for over a year now. And I thought this would be like a, maybe a Wednesday night thing, and then it turned into maybe like three or four Wednesday night things. And then like we could do a whole year on this issue. But instead, I'm going to condense it down into just this. Um, so just so you understand uh, the, the layout we're going to do, uh, we'll start this morning, and then around noon we'll stop for a lunch break. Um, we'll com- it. It, it, it will be the next three Sundays we'll try to uh, squeeze all of this in. Um, because this issue keeps surfacing, this issue of spiritual warfare keeps surfacing, and not usually in a good way. Um, but it also turns out it makes a great lead-in for our study in Ephesians, as you will see uh, starting four weeks from now, uh, Ephesus was widely known for its practice and support of various mystical and occultic religions. It was famous as the home of the Temple of Artemis. That's what it looks like now in the corner. That's probably something what it looked like back in its day. Um, The Temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a big deal. The temple was the center of celebration and worship to the goddess. Um, In fact, Artemis was probably the most widely followed deity in all of Paul's travels at that time. 
History records that the temple rituals were very sensuous and erotic in nature. There were eunuchs and virgin priestesses and religious prostitutes, and, and devotees from all over the world would come and worship at these festivities. It was the world center for sensuality and occultic practices, kind of like New Orleans during Mardi Gras on steroids. It had all of that stuff, but all the time. So when Paul writes to the still relatively new church in Ephesus, as we'll see in Ephesians, he he prays for their spiritual strength and unity. He prays for them to lead spirit-led lives, but he feels compelled to remind them of God's power over all other spirits and over all other earthly authorities, over the cosmic powers of this present evil darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are all relevant issues for the church during this time in Ephesus. These are relevant issues for us in the church in Prosser today. Paul writes to this young church, and in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 6, he he says, essentially, take comfort. Don't be alarmed. Take comfort. God has authority over all of this mess. It looks bad. God has authority over all of it. He has authority over the cosmic powers. He has authority over spiritual forces. So take comfort. So Paul's teaching immediately reminds us of a couple of things that were true then, that are still true now. We live in a natural world, all the stuff we see and feel and touch. But there is a supernatural component as well. And God is still in control over all of it. But there are competing spirits. There are cosmic powers. There are spiritual forces of evil. That realization shouldn't really catch any of us by surprise. Most of us here are pretty much aware that that's what's going on. We know we live in a fallen world. We know that man was born with the sin nature, which pulls us away from the holiness of God. It pulls us towards the evil and sinfulness of the devil and his demons. And we just read it in Galatians 5. Paul said the desires of the flesh are against. They're set opposed to. They're competing with the fruit of the Spirit. And so as Christians, we live with this spiritual tension. We're called to be holy, for God is holy, but we have this pull towards the old sin nature also. So we need to be sure we understand this spiritual predicament, the battle between the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit, the pull between the call to God and holiness and our natural inclination towards sin and rebellion, which is encouraged by the devil and his demons. So we have to figure out how to live with this tension. Now, from just a very practical perspective, it seems like we have three basic choices in learning how to deal with this supernatural, spiritual struggle in the Christian life. The first is, we really make it a focus for us. We spend an inordinate amount of time and energy worrying about the power, uh, the, the impact of the demonic. We, we focus all of our efforts on trying to control Satan. That's the way to go. There are people who do that. We'll talk about those people. We're naming names. Uh, or two, we ignore this spiritual component and act as though we're immune, to it, immune from it. Because we're Christians, it's not really an issue for us. Or three, we identify the struggle, we, we try to understand the rules of engagement, and we try to live by a Bible-balanced, Bible-based awareness of the supernatural world and our role in it. So that we don't give the devil more power than he deserves but we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we're not affected by it. Rather, we want to be equipped. We want to be prepared 
for spiritual warfare. So hopefully you're not surprised when I say we choose number three. But the truth is there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misinformation around this whole issue. Uh, sad to say that many, many, many false teachers and false prophets are spreading false information within the church. The church. I mean, there's, we've discussed the issues around the last election uh, and the prophets saying all kinds of weird things. Um, but at, pretty much at any, any time, if, if you spend any time watching you know, the right Christian TV channel, or I would argue the wrong Christian TV channel, um, you've probably heard all kinds of things about the devil and demons and how we can exert authority over them. And you've probably heard a lot of misguided or just flat-out wrong teaching. So my goal here is to try to clear up some of the spiritual warfare confusion. I'm not going to be able to address every question, every issue. If you have questions specific after this sermon, email me, call me. We'll try to address those. But we are going to try to take a look at biblical principles to help us better understand what this issue really is and where the battle truly lies so that we can better discern biblical truth from false prophet hogwash. Now, outside of this recent political boondoggle I've, I've referenced, um, there's also the issue of this idea of spiritual warfare and spiritual abuse within churches that needs to be addressed and we need to be aware of it also. But we all know that in our culture at large, we're certainly seeing a shift in the U.S. We're moving ever more rapidly, it seems, away from any connection to Judeo-Christian ethics and standards, and we're moving in the opposite direction. So if we're not moving in a pro-Christ direction, then we must be moving in an anti-Christ direction. Right? The world is becoming darker. Now, I am not suggesting with any of this that we're nearing the tribulation or that Jesus is coming back on Tuesday. He may be, but we don't know that. There are some who are making these Jesus is warming up the car now claims based on current events and, and things that they're seeing. But in truth, the U.S. has seen these kind of pendulum swings before. I mean, a lot of you might remember a time called the 60s, where it seemed like the culture took a major shift away from Christian ethics. We seemingly gave up on Christian ideals and values, but then, you might remember, there was kind of a pendulum swing back in the 80s, where there was the emergence of seeker-sensitive churches and the, the moral majority, um, people being drawn back into churches, and the start of the whole mega-church movement. So there was kind of a, it seemed like a pendulum swing back. So we may just be on another pendulum swing here, and it's going to come back, and Jesus is still a thousand years away. Or Tuesday. We just don't know. But as the church, we can't just ignore the rising influence of the secular worldly forces around us. Um, and neither can we ignore what's happening in the church. Again, you know, the, the false prophets, uh, the new, pro new apostolic movement, the new prophet movement. Um, the increase in prosperity gospel ministries, the increase in spiritual warfare experts, they're all over the place. Many of which are false teachers, and that moves us into spiritual abuse. But spiritual warfare is a real thing. It has larger cultural components, even though we tend to deal with it mostly on a personal level. We know how we're being affected. But there is a larger battle going on as well. So as we consider how or 
what we need to do about all this, or against whatever this is, our guidebook ought to be Scripture, not what the guy on TV says, or what God told him, what he told us God told him. It should be Scripture. So we're going to look at Scripture to learn what we need to know about spiritual warfare, about Satan, about the devil, about demons. And so we need to start with a little bit of a history lesson. So the first thing we need to know about this spiritual conflict is that it's not new. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we are literally like seven days and four hours into creation. We don't know what the time is, but it's pretty close probably. Pretty, pretty close into creation, and spiritual warfare has begun. God has revealed his will for his people. You're going to live in this garden. You can eat all of this stuff, but that fruit from that tree, don't eat that. And a serpent comes along to change their mind, to, to move them against God's will. And how did this spiritual battle begin? How did the serpent begin this great spiritual conflict, this cosmic battle? Did he move in and take possession of Eve? Did he make her do that backwards crab walk thing or make her head spin? Or No. Did she, did she face overwhelming demonic oppression for weeks and she couldn't dream because she was having these horrible dreams? And No. Did she hear a deep, thunderous voice yell, Get out! <laughs> no, it says that he was smooth and cunning and crafty. Hey, Eve. How's it going? <laughs> How's things with Adam? Good, good. You guys make a good couple. I'm just checking my facts here, Eve. Uh, did God really say you? <laughs> did God really say you can't eat any of that good-looking fruit? I mean, there's so much of it. He was crafty, and of course, Eve, you know, was tempted to disregard God's command and. Instead, listened to the crafty, cunning serpent. And this initial encounter starts to, un, starts to inform, or should start to inform, our understanding of this being that we've come to call Satan or the devil or Lucifer or, or lots of other names. But it also sheds light on how the enemy works. This pattern is kind of being set here. And it shows us a number of things. For example, we, we know from this section that there is an almighty, sovereign creator, God. And there's Adam and Eve, whom God has created. And although we're not yet told, there's this other seemingly intelligent created being or, or beings. I mean, this is probably more than just some random talking snake who happened to be in the neighborhood at the time. There's this other being who, you know, identifies as a serpent, but seems to have a goal of undoing what God is trying to do. So where did he come from? What's the backstory? What's the origin story for this serpent intelligent being thing? Well, the interesting part is we don't know. We're not told in the Bible for quite some time. 
And then what we know comes through the process of progressive revelation. This is just where, where God continues to slowly reveal more about himself and his creation over time. There is no book dedicated to, here's how Satan came about. Here's where the devil came from. But fortunately, what we do know, there are some things recorded for us in Scripture. We start to learn that in addition to the natural world that God created, in addition to Adam and Eve and animals and whatnot, all the other stuff, um, God also created angels. And using the information that we have progressively received in the Old and New Testaments, we know that angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but generally without physical bodies except on rare occasions, perhaps. Like us, they are created beings. Unlike us, they are not created in the image of God. That's, that distinction is saved for mankind alone. So angels are not eternal in that they've always been, although they could be everlasting in that they might go a ways into the future. But they have some sense of moral judgment and they have high intelligence. And in, in Scripture, we see that they're referred to by other names as well. The sons of God, the Holy Ones, spirits, watchers, thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities. So what we know about angels and what we know about demons comes through this kind of almost fill-in-the-blank fill process as we go through the Old and New Testaments. We pick up things along the way. And although we're not specifically told, we can logically deduce, I think, that angels must have been created no later than the sixth day of creation, but certainly before the seventh day of rest. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth was finished, and all the host of them. So prior to the day of rest, every created being was finished, the heavens, the earth, all the, whole, all the host, which is generally thought to be a reference to angels. Now some suggest that the, the host, the heavenly realm, the angels, were actually created prior to God's work on earth, because Genesis 1-2 says the earth was without form and void. So maybe the heavenly host, all the angels were created before God started work on the earth. We just don't know. It's just conjecture. So by the end of day six, everything's been created, heaven and earth, humans and angels, and it was all good. It was all going according to God's will. And yet, here we have this being seven days and four hours into creation, this angel disguised as a serpent working against the purposes of God in the garden. So what's, what's that about? How did that happen? What changed between Genesis 2-1, where everything is good, and Genesis 3-1, where things start to go off the rails? Again, we don't know for sure, but we can infer some things. We can put some pieces together through the process of progressive revelation to figure out, we're never explicitly told, but Scripture infers that a significant event took place. Isaiah 14 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the, the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Lots of people think while this might refer to an earthly king, it probably also refers to the fall of Satan. In the King James Version, they've actually translated Daystar into Lucifer, which is where that word comes from. 
But this is believed to be a, a brief description of the fall of Satan who wanted to be like God himself. And this understanding, this story, is supported by a passage in Ezekiel, which says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you are filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Now this, in context of Ezekiel, is a direct reference to the king of Tyre. But the fall of the king is likened to the fall of Satan. There's similar language here in both texts, um, with the exception of Ezekiel referring to a created being, an anointed guardian cherub. So we get the idea here of a, of a somewhat exalted angel who was brought low by pride and sinned against God. But it seems this prideful, rebellious angel was joined in his revolt by other angels. He had followers. It wasn't just Satan. It wasn't just Lucifer, whatever name we come up with. It wasn't just this angel that fell. He had followers that went with him. We're, 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 we're shown more in the New Testament. In Luke 10, and he said to them, this is Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The idea of Satan falling from heaven. Second Peter 2, for if God did not spare angels, plural, if he didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Jude 6 says, And the angels, plural, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So based on the, the Old Testament text, the New Testament text, and this idea of progressive revelation, we begin to form a picture here that there was an uprising. Let's call it an insurrection for fun. There was an insurrection that occurred with this day star being, this created being leading the way and being joined in by many angels. The rebellion was put down and they were banished from the presence of God. Committed to hell, at least in some cases, but certainly to the ground. Earth, we can assume. But now they're even more determined to undo what God is attempting to do. So if Lucifer, Satan, Daystar, if he can't be God, then he wants to try to beat God. So with this information, we have another definition that demons are angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. But they still possess moral judgment and high intelligence. So now we're back to Genesis 3.1, and they're already seeking to undo God's plan. And what was the adversary's approach? Again, this day star, Lucifer, Satan, who wanted to be equal with God, how did he craftily engage Eve? He said, Eve, you can be like God. You can be like God. And that is the age-old temptation that underlies every other temptation that we face. That's the issue. You don't need to listen to God. You can be your own God. 
It comes in different forms and it comes with different packages and wrappings and, you know, whether you're lying or cheating or stealing or murder or whatever, but the foundational element is you are in charge of you. You don't need to listen to God. You can be your own God. And demons are still at work in that capacity trying to convince us of that very thing. And we're still susceptible to it. So from that time to this, this spiritual battle has raged. God versus Satan. The almighty creator versus the leader of this angelic revolt and all his demons. It's, it's right versus wrong. It's good versus evil. And this is the theme that permeates a lot of our popular culture. And although many still will try to deny the existence of evil, I think a casual observation of the world around us clearly suggests otherwise. And I believe the biblical account provides the best explanation for the state of the world we live in. What God created was good, and Satan has come to destroy it. Now, the name Satan is not really a name. Most Bible translations capitalize it and present it as a name, but it really is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. It's also used several other times in the Old Testament uh, in reference to a human adversary. So it just it means the adversary. But when it refers to this demon, devil, Lucifer-type character, we capitalize it to make it easy for us to understand who it is we're talking about. But the name adversary pretty well sums up his role, too, his, his purpose, his focus. He is the adversary to anything God does. Other, Bibles, other Bible names used are, are, are the devil, the serpent, um, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air, the liar, liar of liars, accuser, murderer, all those things are, are descriptions of this same character. Um, it's interesting that the, the name Satan is first used, in, in, at least in chronological terms, of historical terms, in the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, this is a really interesting passage because we know that he's been banished, right? And yet somehow Satan mixes in with the other angels who come to appear before the Lord. And the Lord says to Satan, where did you come from? as though the Lord didn't know where he came from. He says, where, where did you come from? And Satan says, from going to and fro. Another insight into what Satan does amongst us all. He's always on the prowl. He's always looking to stir things up. And we know the story of Job, right? Satan afflicts Job with the loss of pretty much everything. He tries to get him to renounce or, or to curse God. Because, picture this, if, if Satan, as the adversary, can cause Job to curse or renounce God, Satan would see this as a victory. His ability to lead men away from God is more powerful, he would think, than God's ability to keep them, to retain them. So it's, it's just an ego play for Satan. Now there's an interesting thing here that I'm going to mention. We'll probably talk more about this in the next week or two. But for years... And I've read through this story of Job. You know, you just kind of do the quick read like you do, because we all know the story. Um, 
I had always thought that, or had been cemented in my brain, that Satan asked for permission to afflict Job. But in verse 8, the very next verse, it says, The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? It's not that Satan asked for permission to go after Job. The Lord brings up Job in the first place. That's disturbing. I mean, there's a lot more, obviously, that could be said here. But the Lord offered Job up to this extreme series of trials and temptations, but he gave Satan strict parameters on what he could and could not do to Job. And we know that Job never switched allegiance from God to the enemy of God. He got mad. He got upset. He asked questions. But he repeatedly acknowledged that God is sovereign and God knows best. Even in the deepest, darkest moments of his existence, Job never changed. But this makes you think, when we face extreme trial of whatever kind it is, I mean, the Lord knows what we're going through. He has allowed this. So the question then becomes, what does he want from us? What are we supposed to learn from this? Are we supposed to, is it just to help us grow in faith through this trying time? Is it so that our faith might be an example to someone else who's watching and experiencing a hard time? Is it, is it just to help us understand that whatever pain, whatever discomfort, whatever tri- trial we may experience is nothing compared to what Jesus endured for us? This is to humble us. I don't know, these are big questions, and that's just a little side note as part of this. But it's important for us to know that the Lord was always in control of the situation with Job. Satan had his limits. We read, read the name Satan again as it applies to the leader of the rebel, this angelic rebellion in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles says, Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. But in 2 Samuel 24... It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds on this, it seems as though David had a pride problem that was beginning to overshadow his allegiance to the Lord. It finally reached a point where the Lord allowed Satan to tempt David. The Lord never leads us into sin. But he allowed Satan, the adversary, the tempter, to come in as a tempter, which allowed David's sin of pride to be revealed. The Lord allowed it to show David his own weakness. But this text, again, makes it clear that Satan has limits. He is not in any way equal with God. They are not evenly matched superheroes, and we're all just waiting to see how it's going to come out in the end. God is always in control. This is a crucial part of our understanding of spiritual warfare. The only other specific Old Testament mention of Satan is in the book of Zechariah, where Zechariah has a series of dreams, and Satan is clearly portrayed as the adversary, the accuser, the enemy of God. So this this all just helps kind of fill out our picture. Um, But all accounted for, the, the word or the name Satan, when referring to this head demon character, is used 14 times in the Old Testament, 11 of those in the book of Job. So this is not a vast storehouse of knowledge or information about Satan. 
in the Old Testament. Now, the name is used 33 times in the New Testament. So what does that tell us? The, the, the lack of information about Satan and demons in the Old Testament means that Satan wasn't really much of an issue for the Israels, Israelites? He wasn't really an issue until Jesus showed up? Well, that's clearly not the case, because um, we're told over and over again how wicked the people became. All these other people groups, how the Israelites were always being impacted, being affected by these other wicked neighbors. The supernatural spiritual warfare was very much at work. We're, we're told repeatedly about idol worship and child sacrifices and sexual immorality. Remember in Genesis, by the time of Noah, we're told that the hearts of men were only wicked all the time. They're only evil all the time. Satan and his demons were active. They were busy. But the Lord chose, for reasons we can only surmise, he chose to reveal limited amounts of information about the supernatural world to the Israelites. We, we don't know. Perhaps the Lord knew that they wouldn't be able to handle the knowledge of this powerful but not quite godlike adversary. Perhaps he knew that our, our, our own sin nature compels us to rebel against God anyway, and he didn't want to offer them an, an easy out or a justification for their sin. You know, but Lord, the devil made me do it. I mean, let's consider that for a moment, because our tendency is to affix blame elsewhere. Everybody else but us. It was the devil that made us do it, we like to think. Already, some of you are probably thinking of Flip Wilson, who became a household name for a while, because the devil made Geraldine do it. But on only two occasions in the Old Testament are we told that the adversary had direct involvement in sin against God. I'm not suggesting that it wasn't more, but only two that are specifically mentioned. Eve and David, both personally tempted and both led to sin against the Lord. Job held firm. Could it be that as a result of our inherited sin nature, we just don't need that much help to sin? I mean, we're not told that there was a little, you know, a little shoulder demon whispering into Cain's ear, that brother of yours, you, you need to kill him. I mean, maybe that's what was happening. Maybe there was some kind of demonic oppression. We're not told. What we are told was that Cain was already jealous and prideful. You know, we're not told that Sarah had these nightly demonic oppressions or had a little shoulder devil whispering in her ear, you know, if you gave Hagar to Abraham, you could have a child. Don't wait for God. Who knows what he's going to do? I mean, maybe that's what happened, but we're not told. What we do know is that she had become bitter and she was angry and she was frustrated about not being able to have a child of her own. We're never told that the brothers of Joseph all had little shoulder demons whispering in their ear, Look at that fancy coat. I mean, yeah, your dad loves him more, obviously, but I don't think he likes you at all. You should just take him out. It could have been what was happening, but we're not told. What we do know is the brothers were bitter and jealous over the special treatment that their brother received from their father. 
I mean, I think you see my point. I think you see where I'm going. Fallible, sinful humans are perfectly capable of committing all kinds of sins all on our own. More often than not, we don't need to be demon-possessed. More often than not, we don't even need the little shoulder devil whispering in our ear telling us to rebel against God in our lives. More often than not, we just need an opportunity. The right set of circumstances. Maybe a little nudge. So the Old Testament doesn't really give us a clear picture of this, the, the, the size and scope of this supernatural conflict, probably for a variety of reasons, but there is still plenty of evidence that it was a thing. I mean, from the time of the fall, the adversary, Satan and his demons, have been at work. In Deuteronomy 32, we're told that the people made sacrifices to demons, to gods they'd never known. In Psalm 106, it says they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. So even though direct information from the Old Testament is a bit lacking, the devil and his followers were alive and well. And yet the story is still a bit unclear. There are some scholars who argue or disagree with some of the progressive revelation dots that are connected. But the New Testament provides much more information as to the power and the workings of the demonic forces. So we can, I think with some degree of certainty, we can know that the devil was the originator of sin. Before Eve was tempted, the rebellion occurred, and it was led by the one we call Satan or the devil. And and 1 John says, the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now this means from the beginning of his creation, not from God's beginning because Satan is a created being. But it also says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which might explain why the spiritual warfare seems to kick up a notch in the New Testament. We'll look at that a little more. But the New Testament makes it clear that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar. He was the father of lies. So Satan's focus has been to rebel against God, to sin, and to tempt others to sin. And his demons try to oppose and destroy every work of God. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a work of God. So you're going to face some, some oppression, some spiritual warfare at some point. But remember, even Jesus was tempted to sin by the devil himself. But Luke 4 says, being full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, Jesus never gave in. So the devil and his cohorts go to and fro over the earth, prowling like lions, seeking whom they may devour, or caused to stumble and sin, and they do this by lying, tempting, tempting, causing doubt, fear, confusion, sickness, slander, all kinds of things. Whatever they think might work on us. And we all have our own particular areas of weakness. It's important for us to know what our weaknesses are, and to take steps to guard against them. But we also know that demons are limited by God's control. They have limited power. Even Satan himself is not God's equal in any way. I keep saying that because we need to remember that. Against Job, Satan could only do what God allowed him to do. Jude 6 says demons are kept in chains, restricted in what they can do. So Satan and his demons don't know what God knows. They're smart enough to know how to attack our weaknesses because they watch us. They observe us. They learn from us. But they can't tell our future. They can't read our minds. They can't read our thoughts. They are, we like to use the phrase, they're bad actors. 
they're not really actors, they're reactors. They only learn from watching us. They're limited in their power and influence. And this should help us if we hold to scriptural truth. The truth is, a lot of what we know, or a lot of what we think we know about Satan and demons comes from popular culture. It comes from books and TV and movies, and there's so much other stuff that's been added on over the years. Bad teaching, bad preaching, and it's all informed our thinking about the supernatural. I mean, the devil has appeared as a character in, in the opera, Mephistopheles and Faust, right? He's been portrayed in the Twilight Zone, touched by an angel, the TV show Supernatural, over and over and over and over again. He was written about in Milton's Paradise Lost, which has been very influential on our understanding of the devil. Movies like The Devil and Daniel Webster, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, Crossroads, Heaven Can Wait. It's a popular theme in popular culture, in music. We could probably all name a couple of you know heavy metal bands. And as a result, we have all of this bad incorrect information, which is not really helpful at all for us in this conflict. We're fighting the wrong things. Some popular misconceptions are that Satan is not a personal being, but he's just more like a force of evil. It's a, it's a force. Or it's often portrayed that Satan is equal to God, but, you know, like in a, in a bad way. He lives and rules in hell. How can he live and rule in hell if he's walking to and fro? He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Not true. He is omnipresent, people like to believe. I mean, you'd almost have to believe that, that he is omnipresent if you believe that people in India and Illinois can all proclaim together, the devil made me do it. He'd have to be able to be everywhere all at the same time. Or that demons can possess anyone at any time. You know that even our idea, our understanding of Satan's appearance is this weird hodgepodge of ideas and concepts from different cultures. The book of Revelation describes a great beast. This is usually associated with a Satan-like character as having two horns like a lamb. So our picture of Satan has two horns. He has cloven hooves. Likely because the Greek god Pan was part animal and part man, and Pan had cloven hooves, so those kind of got adopted in at some point. Satan has a pointy tail. From the book of Revelations, the great dragon had a tail that swept down a third of the stars. What's a devil without a pitchfork? Does anyone ever ask, why does a devil need a pitchfork? Is he growing hay in hell? What's, a, what's up with that? That probably has been adopted from the Greek god Hades, who is the god of the underworld. He is always depicted with a pitchfork of some kind. So all of this is conjecture. It's all speculation. Even the scriptural passages that we have tend to be more metaphoric than descriptive. But all of this has led to what we really think of as an almost cartoon-like devil rather than a brilliantly created angel. If anybody's read the screw tape letters, well, let me say this. If you haven't read it, go home and read it. Uh, but C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters 
wrote this about the devil. Now, the, the, if you haven't read it, the premise is there's this supervisor demon who's writing letters to these lesser demons on their assignments and how they should go about doing things. So this is one of the letters. It says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. So the idea is we have this cartoonish version of the devil. And we can easily think, well, that's just stupid. Who believes in that? So we don't believe in the devil at all. We ignore the cartoon version and we ignore it all. The devil creates this straw man, this cartoon version, and that just seems silly. So we can't believe in any of it. Now, again, I'm just kind of scratching the surface here. But all of this is important for us to understand. As we try to navigate how to live in the world, but not be of the world, as we try to maintain a healthy balance between a natural awareness and even a a wariness of the schemes of the devil, as we try to put our focus on worshiping Jesus and not becoming fixated on the devil, we need to remember. C.S. Lewis also wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. If we dismiss them, we're wrong, and they're okay with that. If we give them too much power, we're wrong, and they're okay with that too. We need to be aware of the devil and demons and how they work, but how they truly work according to Scripture without giving into unhealthy focus or fear of them. When we focus on the devil and our fear of the dark supernatural forces, we start to see devils everywhere. I mean, this is all over certain segments of, you know, Christian TV. Um, You know, the, the demon of carburetors kept my car from starting. That's why I couldn't come to church. The demon of lust made me click 19 times and go to that side I didn't want to be on. It was the demon of lust. The demon of low air pressure caused a flat tire, and I couldn't go. I mean, we we have all of this silly stuff that's being taught. We've created this errant mythology about Satan and his demons, which can cause us to turn our attention towards them and away from Jesus, which is what they want. So with this basic background. With this understanding of who our opponent is, we're going to spend the next couple weeks getting into a little more of the the nitty-gritty of spiritual warfare. So because we have all these pervasive cultural images of the devil and demons and all these things we're we're told they can do, next week we're going to look at the um, spiritual warfare it isn't what it isn't portion. And the following week then we'll look at it is what it is. We'll look at what the Bible really says it is Next week, we'll address some of the bad teachings, some of the bad ideas, um, some of the false teaching that's out there. The, the key takeaway for us today is Satan is not equal to God in any way. Amen. The devil and the demons can only do what God allows them to do because God is greater. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And as followers of Jesus Christ, that works to our benefit. 
I mean, if, you read, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you kind of know how this battle ends. Right? So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to live in fear. I hope you have found this helpful. I think we need a solid biblical foundation to deal with spiritual conflict in our own lives, but based on the truth of God's word, not some Hollywood director and what they came up with. Let's continue to fight our own spiritual battles for truth and obedience. Let's continue to fight based on spiritual truth and not popular misconceptions or lies. So if you have any questions, anything you want me to touch in the next week or two, let me know and I'll try to address that. It's a big topic. This is just a little snapshot, I understand. But gosh, it's gone on for a really long time now. So let's pray and then we will conclude this one. Lord, there's a lot here that we don't understand. Um, we, we do understand that spiritual warfare is real, that, that, that Satan, the, the devil, and demons are real, um, that there are these principalities and authorities and um, all of these things that we need to be aware of, um, maybe even have some, some reasonable concern about. Um, but we also understand that you just didn't give us a lot of information here, and I, and I think that's probably for our benefit. What little we know terrifies us inordinately sometimes. If you told us more, we'd probably just be more terrified. Um, but Lord, I pray that as we go through this over the next couple of weeks, as we live our lives over the next few weeks and, and, and try to find application for this, that we do remember, above all, God is greater. Jesus is king. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Lord, if we put our faith in you, if we put our trust in you, no matter the trial, no matter the temptation, no matter what's coming our way, we can have victory over all of it because you have victory over Satan and his demons and all their works and anything else they might try to do to us. So we thank you for giving us that same power, for giving us wisdom to know how to live in this world, for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth. Lord, keep our our ears open, our, our hearts open, um, so that we have discernment over what is true and what is not true, what is scriptural and what is not. And I also pray that then whatever discernment we gain, we can be of benefit to others who are struggling with these same issues. Thank you for your wisdom passed down to us through this great book. In Jesus' name, amen.